0: Hello, welcome to the Cities on the Frontline Urban Exchange Podcast. We've created this space for city leaders and urban practitioners to come together for a few minutes to share the opportunities and challenges they are grappling with as they drive transformative change in cities today. I'm Lauren Sorkin, Executive Director of the Resilient Cities Network. We are a city-led network of nearly 100 city members around the world working to build urban resilience that enables cities to thrive no matter the shock or stress faced. And I'm pleased you've joined us for this episode hosted with our partner, Smart Cities World, with sponsorship from our friends and co-conspirators in urban resilience, the World Bank. Cities are truly on the front line of delivering a future that is resilient, sustainable, economically robust, healthy and equitable for all of us. It is no small charge. At the Resilient Cities Network, we provide forums like this to bring together knowledge, practice and partnerships that support and encourage city leaders and urban practitioners in their efforts. Now over to my co-host Paul Wilson, Chair of the Smart Cities World Advisory Board. Thanks Lauren, it's great to be doing this with you. I'm Chair of Smart Cities World's Advisory Board. And every year, more than a million people read Smart Cities World, and thirty thousand people are members, gaining access to special reports and content. And members include officials from more than a thousand cities, with new members every single week. And in the day job, I'm chief business officer at Connected Places, catapult the UK's innovation accelerator for cities, transport, and places. Together we're sharing ideas that solve urban challenges, bringing people together from the public, private, academic and not-for-profit sectors. Our Urban Exchange podcast will take us around the world to meet people working on the front line
1: My name is Luke Antonio, the Senior Editor at Smart Cities World, co-partner of the Cities on the Frontline Urban Exchange podcast alongside Resilient Cities Network. And I'll be your host on this fourth episode as Lawrence Walkin, Executive Director of the Resilient Cities Network, checks in with Mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, to reflect on COP26 so far, climate adaptation and mitigation, and the Mayor's role in keeping Miami future ready through digital technology. Well,
0: it's absolutely lovely to be here with you this morning, Mayor Francis Suarez. Thank you for joining us from the city of Miami. Miami has been a member of the Resilient Cities Network for many years and released the Resilient 305 strategy, which is quite innovative across multiple cities in 2019. Thank you so much for being with us this morning.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Well, we are coming to the audience live from COP26. And this event has been referenced as the most pivotal in generations in terms of advancing global climate action to address climate change. Um, and Mayor Suarez, I would characterize both of us as kind of young leaders in this space. So it's really important to the future of our, our lives, our careers. How are you finding the conversations and the dialogue here in Glasgow? Are cities really represented well at the table? And what are some of the central themes coming up, which you think will help advance the changes necessary for cities in the future?
2: Well, I do think that cities are well represented. We had um, many cities that came up. Uh, I led a delegation of cities from the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Um, obviously, C40s was here represented as well as as other climate organizations. So, I do think that cities, and particularly in the United States, where cities are basically eighty-five percent of the of the population of the of the United States. Are incredibly important, you know. When in the prior administration, when the federal government got out of the Paris Accord, I think people were very, very worried. And when they saw cities step up, um, they made they made them feel much more at ease because they knew that cities were a big part of of the population of of our country. I think we are at an inflection point where uh, people in the prior generation, the baby boomer generation, who are sort of phasing out, uh, are starting to understand how important this issue is to our generation. And then people in the generations that follow us are really pushing us because we are the ones that now have responsibility. We are the ones that now have the ability to act and uh, they feel an incredible sense of, of, um, of, of, of an emergency, right? This is, this is an elevated issue and that this is not something that we can um, sort of slow play or something that we can push off uh, any longer. Uh, so you know, we've been very blessed in our generation to enjoy nature in a in an incredible way, but that that enjoyment is not guaranteed for my children and for my grandchildren. And so I think you know for us that that's what's before us. that's a challenge that's before us. Um, and I think the conversations here are conversations that are really gonna get us to where we need to be. And I think you know that's uh, being a carbon neutral world um, and finding ways to reverse the effects that we have, had on our on our world, and I, I'm confident that we can do
0: both. It's it's really important what what you said about cities' role in that. You know, we know that cities have uh, more than half of our population and are responsible for two thirds of emissions. And at the same time, um, you know, cities are not just our greatest risk, but they're also our greatest opportunity for innovation. Um, and in Miami, you, you have the experience of being on the forefront also of the impacts, right? It, it's a it's a hurricane flood risk city. Um, and, and this year, we've seen so many climate disasters across the world and not in the places that you might expect. I mean, the floods that happened in China, I think, shocked a lot of people in the Netherlands and Germany and the winter storm that we, we saw in Houston as well. So a lot of other cities are waking up to what Miami has really been facing for for a long time. Um, and and the discussion that needs to bring resilience and adaptation onto this equal footing so that we can protect people in cities. Are there specific commitments, Mayor, that you hope to see as a result of the meetings here in Glasgow? Are there things that would be more helpful for the work in Miami to continue to grow the city into what is already developing as a major international hub for economic activity and resilience in, in the face of a changing climate?
2: Well, let me first touch the first point that you made, which is that uh, climate is now affecting more and more cities, right? Climate issues, climate related issues. And so before it was kind of like, well, Miami is sort of the epicenter because of the hurricanes. Now we're seeing wildfires, we're seeing um, you know, heat waves, we're seeing cold waves. Uh, uh, we're seeing all kinds of climatic uh, impacts throughout the United States. So I think, unfortunately, more people are affected uh, than ever uh, in terms of, of, of specific goals, You know, one of the things that really um, impacted me when I got here was what cities could do if they were carbon neutral. We would be taking out, uh, I think it was 1.6 gigatons of carbon from the environment. So that, to me, uh, really highlights, um, as you said, the opportunity, but also the destructive nature um, that uh, cities are, are engaged in, unchecked, right? And I think uh, that, if I remember correctly, that was um, several hundred, uh, it was as as if we were deactivating several hundred coal mines. Um, So it's an incredible impact. And, uh, you know, I think for me, what I want to see coming out of COP26 is a commitment uh, from the world, particularly from coal mining producing countries, that we're going to shut down coal mining once and for all. Um, We have the technology to do it. Um, it's it's you know we can produce energy inexpensively and and it doesn't hurt our environment uh, relatively speaking and I think uh, we need to take that next step as a as a world uh, and and then you know strive for carbon neutrality and then I would say lastly um, as we're adapting to all these climatic phenomena in our cities and uh, across the, the world uh, we have to find ways to reverse the effects of of climate change that we've experienced.
0: You made a very good point there is that we need to find ways to actually reverse some of the change and to protect ourselves from the amount of change that's already baked into our system, the heat, the more intense storms that we're going to experience. In what ways is Miami already investing in urban resilience to withstand impacts from these inevitable kinds of shocks and stresses?
2: Well, like you said, I mean, we've we've uh, updated our stormwater master plan to take into account sea level rise. That was a multi-million dollar investment. We have the Resilient 305 strategy, uh, which we did with the Rockefeller Foundation, where we had each city, first of all, got a resiliency officer and started elevating the issue to the managerial level, the highest levels uh, of our government. And we created a, a multi-city strategy, um, which is unusual. Uh, I think we're the only Rockefeller city that was a region as opposed to a city. So I think that, that yeah, I think that was innovative, but uh, what we've done as a city, which is unusual as well, is we voted to do something we don't like to do in Miami, which is to tax ourselves. We voted to tax ourselves to the tune of 200 million dollars, 400 million total, but 200 million for resiliency projects. So we're hoping that the state and federal government um, put in their fair share uh, because we know that this is a problem that exceeds 200 million dollars but we're going to put that money to work based on our stormwater Master Plan to make Miami as water resilient as possible. We've seen some just coming on the way to COP. I saw major flooding in Miami um, and it was just a rain event. It was a rain bomb. Um, you know, it wasn't a hurricane. It wasn't a, you know, we are in king Tide. So that is definitely influencing uh, the pooling of, of water. And we do have some construction projects uh, that are influencing the pooling of water. But it's sad when you see a developed, city in a developed country deal with these kinds of issues that you would normally see in the um, developing world so you know th- that just highlights to me that w- we need to be humble about this issue and understand that mother nature has an awesome ability and what we have to do is is uh, you know sort of uh continue to be aggressive and think outside of the box and come up with solutions and every time we think we're getting there mother nature throws something at us that is like a ma- an order of magnitude greater than what we were anticipating or than we were preparing for. And we saw that with Dorian after Irma. Irma produced four to six feet of storm surge, which, which was a lot, and put our, our financial center two or three feet underwater. And then we saw Dorian in the Bahamas, which stood over the Bahamas for two days, and it was a Category 5 hurricane. And that produced 15 to 20 feet of storm surge. So, I mean, it, it's just a whole other level of, of destructive power and we know it's out there, so it's it's no longer science fiction. Now it's real, so we have to start preparing not just for Irma. Now we have to start preparing for a Dorian-like event, and that really um, that really humbles you as well.
0: You highlighted a number of points there, Mariswari, that I think are so important in the resilience discussion. And um, you know, th- thank you for also highlighting the innovative work that Miami has been doing as really. A resilient multi-city region. It is the only city in our network that has that approach. And, and resilience doesn't know boundaries. So it's a really important one and, and it's been a showcase. But I think something that you also said is that we have this really uncertain future. Uh, and so resilience isn't actually a state that you arrive at. It's this constant practice and that constant pushing yourself to look out into that next challenge and to be to be ready for that. You've already been mayor for four years. And then before that, you were a member of the Miami City Commission for eight. Do you think that the city's approach and public perception of resilience and climate adaptation has changed a lot, experiencing these new and, and more powerful storms? And, you know, what are the accomplishments you're, you're most proud of? You mentioned this tax, this which is actually a very strong show of support for, for the agenda. Um, it, it kind of activates that ounce of prevention, pound of cure you know, motto that we hear so often and not every city can do that. So what are, what are some of the, the accomplishments that you're most proud of in this sphere of building resilience?
2: Well, uh, like you said, uh, to be resilient means to understand that um, your job is never done, right? That you're, you're constantly trying to stay one step ahead of the disruptive nature of whether it's the economy or the disruptive nature of our environment. So, uh, you know, I, I, it is a humbling uh, experience. Um, you know, in terms of our accomplishments, I think, uh, you know, being uh, a C40 or entering into C40 was a big accomplishment. Um, um unleashing or, or sort of unveiling our uh, carbon neutrality plan on Earth Day this year, for me, was a very significant accomplishment. of uh, Completing our stormwater master plan, which was outdated and needed to take into account sea level rise, um, which it was going to give us sort of the, the roadmap for how we spend our resiliency money. That was incredibly important. We didn't want to just spend money without a, a thoughtful plan on how we're going to do it and where we're going to get the most bang for our buck. So I think uh, those are some of the biggest accomplishments. Obviously, once we start to see, I mean, we, we've also, you know, installed pumps, we've installed um, uh, backflow preventer valves, um, and, and we've done a variety of things to try to protect the bay as well from finding people who who are, um, you know, who are irresponsible in terms of construction and also having some sort of an inlet protection system so that things don't get into our bay. So, I mean, you know, we've done a variety of things. We have a long way to go. Um, like I said, our, our model was IRMA. And now we have to understand that there is a whole another level out there. And, uh, and that is, that's, that's a bit scary. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we feel very bullish. Uh, you know, people are not stopping to invest in Miami. They, they haven't, uh, you know, really like it hasn't affected our ability to grow. Um, and, and I think uh, that is a, um, and, and by the way, our, our just recently, our bond ratings were elevated. Uh, so, so, I think that that means that there's confidence in the leadership. There's confidence in the fact that we're not sticking our head in the in the sand and pretending like this this doesn't exist. We're not deniers in any way, shape, or form. On the contrary, we don't have a, we don't have the luxury of being a denier when we're we're experiencing these uh, effects on a on a regular basis already. Right? This is not uh, conjecture. This is real. And so it real. Um, it, it's very real for us. So. Uh, you know, we don't have a luxury of debating a lot of this stuff, right? We just have to act and we have to find ways to act at a greater scale.
0: Yeah, I mean, they sometimes say sun- sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? So taking those problems, right. putting them out in the you have plenty of sunshine in Florida. Um, and uh, I think you've also been someone who's been shining a light on this issue of needing to adapt. And you're one of the founding leaders of A Thousand Cities Adapt Now, the global program that uh, Paris and Rotterdam, two other members of the Resilient Cities Network, are also founding members of with you. Um, you talked a little bit about bond ratings what, what is it that is now really enabling um, city departments to situate budgets and invest in nature-based solutions? And what, what kind of um, lessons can other cities learn from the work that you've all done, uh, for example, through the city's resiliency bond, which is a, a pretty innovative kind of financial instrument?
2: Yeah. I think the first lesson is you have to elevate the importance of resiliency in your in, in your organization, uh, number one. And I think number two is you have to fund it. You know, you have to, you know, money talks, right? And so uh, it's one thing to say, we're going to elevate resiliency. It's a whole other thing to actually fund a department to <clears throat> weave resiliency into everything that you do. Um, and, and as a city that's um, being threatened uh, by, by, by climate uh, change effects, uh, you really have to weave it into everything that you do. Um, there, there can't be a discussion about how our infrastructure is going to expand without a major consideration of of how we're going to um, take into account resiliency efforts. So we've done that. By the way, we, you know, we've been pushed and I want to give credit, particularly to the young people in our community. They push me and they push our government. They're not easily satisfied and they are not to be sort of like dismissed. They, they, they really are not. And, and I commend them for that. And there have been times where I've questioned... Or have to sort of second-guess myself and you know listen we all have a tendency to get defensive when someone's criticizing us right I mean that's sort of a natural tendency but when you think about it sometimes you think back and you go you know what they're right and there have been times where they've been where they have prompted me to, to make to to do certain things that maybe initially I thought am I going too far is it uh, you know for example they wanted me to to um, declare a climate emergency and I said, "Wow, you know, I mean, what what kind of a message am I sending to the world if we de- declare that we're in a climate emergency?" And I thought about it, and then I, I went one step further. And I, as as chair of the Environment Committee for the U.S. Conference of Mayors, I declared a national climate emergency. And then I went back home and declared a, a, a local climate emergency. So they were they were very happy about the fact that we're elevating this issue to the emergency level. I mean, because when it's an emergency, I mean, it's like you got to do it now, right? They're, they're, you don't you can't just wait on emergencies. You know, and I think the other one was they wanted us. Uh, we had we had tried to organizationally shift our residency department, and it wasn't well received. And they mm-hmm. wanted us to sort of go back to the way that we had it before. And we, we not only went back to the way we had it before, but we actually grew, we actually grew it and expanded it and gave it more resources. And so they were thrilled. Um, and that was a that was just a reflection where we, we reflected on on the criticism. We thought we were doing it for the right reasons. Well, the change, but. We could, under, we could tell that it wasn't resonating, right? And I think part of uh, doing what you do is not just making your department more actionable, but also being more reflective of what the public wants to see, right? And how they they, they find. So we did that in, in, in the last budget and it was very, very well received. So, it, it, uh, you know, <clears throat> I just want to be honest with the people who are watching this and know that this is not a process where we're just hitting home runs all the time, right? This is a process that's very um, collaborative, Uh, it can be like, like more like breaking eggs and and trying to get the right sauce and and the right consistency.
0: There is no one recipe for resilience. And I think that's a really powerful message, right? It's, it's an iterative process. It Uh, It has to be a reflective process, which is a word you use several times as you were describing that. And it also has to be really inclusive. Right. Because if we're going to grow, Absolutely. you know, we have to take those new opinions on board. Um, and you know, speaking of opinions and in coalitions, you know, you're, you're a leader who is involved in a number of global networks. You mentioned uh, C40, you mentioned our network, Resilient Cities Network. We mentioned U.S. Conference of Mayors. Why are these coalitions and global networks really important to helping cities advance? You know, when you have cities that are so powerful um, and can mobilize large budgets, why, why do they need city networks?
2: Well let me tell you why and I'll give you a perfect example um specific example uh, as as the uh, vice president of the US Conference of Mayors I'm going to be the incoming president now in um, in January Congratulations thank you thank you um I was invited by the White House um, uh, a bipartisan coalition of mayors and governors there was only four mayors and four governors and I was one of the four mayors to talk about ARPA funding and the cares act had completely left cities out i mean unless you unless you had a population of half a million or above you didn't get a direct payment from the federal government which meant that a city like ours that should have gotten 80 million got eight million um and so we needed to correct that and it, but for my involvement in the u.s conference of mayors i may never have been in the white house i may never have had the opportunity to really advocate for a truer and better way uh and and to the white house's credit they actually incorporated our ideas. They put they they gave us the money in a CDBG model directly to the city, and we ended up getting 140 million dollars. So um, that's an enormous amount of, of of resources, which allow us to continue to do our mission on the resiliency side without impacting some of our other priorities. So that that's that's incredibly important. That network's important. The Global uh, Council on Adaptation that I'm the only U.S. mayor on only one of two mayors in the world, uh, Mayor uh, Hidalgo from Paris is the other mayor and many heads of state level um, actors that are in that uh, council, which used to be a commission that reported to the the UN a a few years ago. Uh, uh, That commission's work is about the global impact of adapting to climate change and how it could influence policy, not just uh, in in, in climate-based initiatives, but in food um, and in, in, in global tensions we don't we don't understand fully that some of these climate issues have more than just a climate impact, right? They're going to impact our global f- food supplies. We start we're starting to see now some supply chain issues because of COVID, uh, or major supply chain issues because of COVID. People don't realize the ripple effect. And when you think about um, the conversation has now changed to climate as a national security issue, right? And the reason why is because you can have global conflicts over food supply. And that's something that we have to start really paying attention to because we don't want to be in that situation.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, there's so many parts of that answer to pick up on. And as someone who spent about two decades working in in the in the climate space, you know, in the beginning, it was really hard to have that conversation outside of green circles Um, and. It, it is an issue that impacts every part of our lives our food systems, those kinds of um, those kinds of ripple effects that we're still appreciating and and now we do see that conversation really expanding um, you know your, your leadership on this topic in particular making sure that we get adaptation and resilience on equal footing with mitigation is is really tremendous and important because it's about taking care of our vulnerable communities now um, yet, it's frankly pretty unique in your political party in the United States and I'm not telling you anything that that you don't know but I wonder you know given that perspective that you have h- how do you view this gridlock that continues to to exist on some of these topics of climate change and what are the ways that that you can bridge those gaps and how do you reach out to those who are you know quote- unquote unconverted in industries and government who are on the sidelines and, and convince them to to get involved
2: well I would say a few things one is, you know, we have a model in Miami that the environment is the economy, not that the environment is antithetical to the economy. I think there's been a, a thought process that you had to choose one or the other. Either you were an environmentalist and that hurt, somehow hurt the economy or you were pro-economy. And so, therefore, the environment was sort of um, subordinate. And I think we're, we're trying to rebrand that and say, no, the environment is the economy, right? Uh, I think there was a presidential election that said it's the economy, stupid, right? Well, the environment is the economy. Um, it, is, it certainly is in Miami. <clears throat> so that's, that's, that's an issue. Uh, I think the second thing is some of it is semantics, right? Um, in, in areas where, uh, for example, where there's a lot of Republicans, you know, sometimes it's better to say flooding than it's to say sea level rise or climate change, right? So you're focusing on the impact as opposed to the cost. Um, and that, uh, every, nobody wants to have flooding. There's, there's not a person in the world that wants to have flooding, right? So Absolutely they, not everybody gets that. <laughs> Right. Everybody gets that, and everybody gets that you have to invest in infrastructure to prevent flooding. So I, I think, you know, th- there are, there are subtle ways that you can get there. Um, and, and in Florida, I can't speak for every part of the United States, but in Florida, you know, the, the we had a Republican legislature that gave us the funds to do our stormwater master plan, um, and and actually we've had a Republican government uh, that has been much more um, environmentally conscious than I think people would would normally think. Um, and that's top down. So, um, I, you know, I, I've been pleasantly surprised by that. Um, and I think many Republicans uh, see this, particularly local Republicans, as a, uh, a viability and existential threat, not a, not a, bi- not a partisan issue.
0: I have to ask another question about economy and future, um, because you have been one of the most vocal mayors inviting um, the future of finance and cryptocurrency yeah. into your city. Um, and you know, as uh, those who study kind of energy efficiency, there's been a lot of controversy around what what are the environmental impacts of cryptocurrency and mining. So. Tell me a little bit about what sure. you see as this opportunity to bring in the future of finance with the future of climate and resilience.
2: Well, I think they're definitely not mutually exclusive, that's for sure. And, you know, I think part of the reason why this um, perception exists that mining is harmful to the environment is because two of the largest miners uh, in terms of um, percentage of, of uh, market share are two of the largest uh, coal-producing countries in the world, which is Russia and China, and so you, you have dirty energy, unfortunately, powering the mining that's happening in those countries. What 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 is good? The good news is that China has banned mining and banned Bitcoin. So that's one of the two major actors that are out of out of that game. Um, and what we're seeing in the United States is the exact opposite of what we're seeing in those countries. Uh, the largest mining company in the United States is carbon neutral. Um, they get sixty percent of their energy from hydroelectric uh, energy. The other forty percent is carbon offsets. So, um, I think every, I mean, every single miner that I've spoken to in the United States understands that for them to mine in an ESG responsible fashion, they have to be carbon neutral. There is no choice. By the way, not every company is carbon neutral. So, just the fact that that a mining company um, sort of sets that as a requirement. It means they're doing better than most any other company in the US that's not even forcing itself to live by that standard just because of the perception. So I actually think the perceptual issues has actually helped tremendously because it's forced domestic uh, mining companies to be carbon neutral and and that's what's actually happening in the US and, and and we're also getting a bigger market share because of the China um banning. So I I think it's all good news um for uh people who want to be in crypto. Uh, in terms of ESG compliance and i think um you know they're they're going to be really setting the example uh, as opposed to being an issue going forward
0: yeah, well, you we see how you can set up that perception for them to be part of the future uh part Absolutely. of the future of finance part of the future of ESG um so th- that seems that you know the future's here and there's some rising optimism i've one last question for you you know w- with so much bad news on the front page uh, of many newspapers. How um, how should we be thinking about calming those anxieties uh, about climate and, and the future? What what gives you hope? And what are the changes on the horizon that you're most looking forward to?
2: I think for me, what gives me the most hope is, is we underestimate ourselves. We underestimate our collective ingenuity. We underestimate our collective will. When you see voters voting for a, a bond like this, it means that they understand the threats and they understand that we need to invest. Uh, I'm also, I hate to say this, but I'm also very excited about a change in generational leadership. Usually when there's a new generation of leadership, um, and I, you know sometimes that sounds bad because it sounds like you're sort of discarding a, a generation. But the truth is there usually is a generation of improvement. Um, and then I'm also excited about the generations that come after me, right? The ones that I will be passing the baton to because you know, I, I would say maybe in the boomer generation, this was like a top five issue. In our generation, maybe it's a top three issue and in their generation it's the number one issue. So I think you go um uh you know you go to a generation where this will be the number one issue in in their generation. And so uh that's exciting because uh, I think by the time hopefully we get to the, to the, their generation we would have slowed down the effects uh, adapted you know consistently and come up with some technologies to reverse some of the impacts. That's my hope.
0: Thank you, Mayor Suarez. Thank, thank you for setting such a clear agenda and an inspiring one and for inviting in um, so many different members of the community, uh, of networks, of business and, and youth leaders to, to come forward and be part of creating a more resilient future. Uh, your, your city is a shining example of the kind of work that can be done with that kind of humble, reflective and, and visionary approach. So thank you so much for your time today. You got it. Thank you. Have a good one.
1: Miami evidently knows all too well the existing and oncoming effects of climate change in the form of extreme weather, but just as clear is Mayor Suarez's plan to invest in resiliency projects to mitigate those effects and ensure the city and its citizens can adapt in the right way. For more from Global Urban Leaders, make sure you're subscribed to the Urban Exchange podcast as we'll be back in just a few short weeks with our next episode. We'll see you there.